0: Greetings, all. We should be up and going. We're live now. So excited to have you all here. We have uh, a fantastic speaker today. We have Cynthia D. Vargas. She is a, a managing partner at F3 Law in California. She's a highly respected education legal expert who represents and advises school districts, county office of education, special education local uh, plan area statewide regarding all aspects of special ed law and practice. She successfully advocates on behalf of public agencies in all capacities relating to due process, at section 504 hearings, IEPT meetings, student discipline and general as it pertains to students with disabilities, mediations, informal resolutions, compliance complaints, with the California Department of Education and Investigations with the Office for Civil Rights. While earning her Juris Doctor at the University of California, Los Angeles, Ms. Vargas worked closely with Disability Law Society, an alliance of UCLA, UCLA law students dedicated to equal access, diversity and inclusion in all aspects of legal education and the legal profession. She received her bachelor's degree in Criminology, Law and Society from the University of California, Irvine, Cynthia has worked as a special education teacher prior to law school, providing her practical understanding of the interconnectedness of education legal matters and the many ways that a single issue can affect various areas of education operation. She's a popular speaker and she's delivered presentations (laughs) across a wide range of education related issues before the Association of California School Administrators, the School Board Association, and California Association of Latino Superintendents and Administrators as well as several workshops and trainings for special education local plan areas and individual school districts. So, without further ado, I am very excited to pass it over to Cynthia Vargas who's going to talk about the development of defensible IEPs. So, welcome Cynthia on behalf of Nick Peed. Thank you so much. As Melissa was
1: saying, I do practice in California. I'm pretty much a California girl, lived here all my life, but I realized that this is a national conference. So I tried to go through, these are materials that I've already had, but I tried to go through and and modify them to try to limit as much as possible California-specific legal requirements and make sure that it's applicable for everyone. But there may be some things, there's some cases in here referenced, from the Ninth Circuit, which is the 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 circuit court that's over California and basically the West Coast, so your uh, geographical areas may have some variances with regard to those decisions. But I want to get in. So whenever I talk about IEP development, I always try to include a short, very short, I promise, um, portion about kind of what is a free appropriate public education. So we'll do that here and we'll talk about the two different components that have to come together, which is there's the substantive side. Did we give? What the child needed, and then there's the procedural side, um, and so we'll talk about the differences between those and 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 why they're each relevant. Um, we're gonna just kind of go into the IP process and timelines and things like that, and then what an IP meeting looks like, and then there's kind of some other parts of the IP. So the, the, the majority of the IP that I talk about is, is part of what I call the connecting the dots, which I'm going to talk about as well. And that is that we take the information on the child's functioning levels, whether that comes just from an annual in the present levels or assessment reports. Those drive areas of need. Areas of need drive goals. Goals drive placement and services. And that's the way we should always think about it. It's not how often we're on a particular campus, or what our district does, or you know, from the the legal perspective, from the IDEA, which is the federal law that governs what we do, the requirement is that we make our decisions based upon the individual student, not the not necessarily the needs of the district. So um, that's the kind of connecting the dots. So. So in the the bulk of the materials about IEP development, I'm going to focus on those core areas, but then there's other parts of the IEP that are relevant. So I'll go into those two. And we'll talk a little bit about IEP notes, because people usually have questions about what should or shouldn't be in the notes. But I will try not to go too deeply because I in all the IEPs that I've attended, I cannot remember when the adaptive physical education specialist is the person taking the notes. But I, I can imagine that it's possible. So. So basically the promise, the promise back in 1982, I think when the Educational Handicap Act was signed was that every child with a disability has a right to a free and appropriate public education all kids, at least in California, we have the California constitution ensures that all students have access to a public education, a free public education. But when it comes to students with disabilities, there's that added uh, layer of appropriateness. And that's all based upon the assessments that we do and the determinations we make at the IEP team meeting. So um, basically in establishing whether or not we provided FAPE, there's two components to that, right? There's procedural and substantive components that e- that, that create FAPE. Um, and I can tell you that on my first day of law school, very first class I had was called civil procedures. And you would expect a civil procedure teacher to say this, but I can tell you that it has proven true time and time again. Um, and especially in the world of special education. And that is, as he walked in the classroom, while all of us young, you know, future lawyers were sitting there all anticipating because it's our first class of law school, he walks in and says, you argue substance, I'll argue procedure, and I will beat you every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Because procedures is typically where we get into trouble. Both are equally important, but procedures are where um, we have a tendency to have hiccups. So um, the procedural piece is um, anything that's included in your IEP document, and here in California, not even the whole state of California, but many school districts in California have used a software program called SACE. And I don't know, are there other school districts that, are, are there other states that use SACE as well?
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: Okay, um, great. So under SACE, definitely, if you if you complete the IEP entirely, all those little boxes, the dates, um, whether it's in small group or individual, you know, are we addressing the special factors and assistive technology? Are we addressing, you know, are we are we going through and taking the steps for behavior plans? Those are all procedural requirements. Um, And then also, you know, things like uh, when a parent makes a request for an assessment, did we get the assessment plan out within 15 days? Did we conduct the assessment within 60 days and convene an IEP team meeting in order to review the results? The meeting notice itself, those are procedural requirements. Everything that's on that meeting notice that talks about when and where the meeting is and who's going to be there. We need to put the parent on notice of who is going to be at the meeting in order to ensure that they're fully informed going into the meeting. Failure to do that is a procedural error. Um, and a procedural error can rise to the level of a denial of faith, but not every procedural error does. So in the Ninth Circuit, we had a decision that came out. So from a school district called um, uh, Target Range, it's actually in Washington, uh, it's or Montana. Sorry, it's in Montana, and it's kind of an interesting name for a school district, especially considering the times that we're in. But it is—it's a called Target Range, and basically, what the judge found was there may be some small procedural errors that happen in an IEP. And they don't necessarily deprive the child or the parent of anything, and those will not be held against the district. But where a procedural error does one of the three things listed here impedes the child's right to a FAPE, significantly impedes the parent's opportunity to participate in the IEP process, or causes a deprivation of educational benefit, then a procedural error can be considered, would be considered a denial of faith. And so the way that this happens is Never, rarely, an intentional thing by school districts. I guess I can't really say never, but it's not typically an intentional thing, but it's a matter of, you know, a parent comes in and talks about the fact that, and trying to just keep this focused on APE, you know, talks about the fact that their child is struggling with um, running or some of the skills that their peers are able to do catching a ball, throwing a ball, those types of things, and that they're interested in having you know, an assessment. And the teacher doesn't really do anything about it. Um, they recognize that the child is struggling, but we work on those things, so it's not that big of a deal. And they don't recommend or they don't notify the adaptive physical education um, teacher that they need to send out an assessment plan. Right, and so the student doesn't get assessed and then uh, time goes by and they just get further and further behind. Ultimately, the parent says, hey, I asked for an assessment back in April and nobody did anything. And so now my my child is further behind um, and that, and so then we do go ahead and assess, determine the child qualifies for APE and that procedural error back from April, would be considered to be a deprivation of the child's opportunity to participate in APE services. It impeded the child's right to a FAPE because had we assessed back in April, they would have had the services in place by the end of May probably. And the start of the new school year, they'd have those services in place. So that's that's a way a procedural error can result in like a deprivation to the, to the child's right to FAPE or their educational benefit. A parent can also argue that that deprived them of the opportunity to participate in the educational process because they didn't have valuable information, i.e. the information that would have come out of that assessment report, to make decisions with regard to their child. So that's just one example of a procedural error that would rise to the level of a denial of fate for the student. Um, and there's, there's other examples too, but that's just kind of um, one way of looking at it so procedural components are so important and I often work with school teams um, almost almost everyone that I work with got into special education because they care about kids and they not only wanted to teach but they want to work with students with special needs and I work with some excellent teachers excellent teachers um, I don't know if they're on the Call here, but I've also worked with some really good adaptive physical education teachers, too, and um, but sometimes what we have is an excellent teacher who's not necessarily the best with progress reporting or um, the, the procedural requirements, so it's just important to understand there's two pieces in order to ensure that we're um, offering and providing a kiddo FAPE. So the other piece is the substantive side, Right. Um, And that is, does the program that was designed meet the child's unique needs? Right. Did we assess the child in all areas of suspected disability that could be procedural or substantive? It's just kind of one of those things that falls in both categories. Once we assess the child, did we identify all of their areas of need? Did we draft goals? to address those areas of need? And did we ensure that they had the proper services to allow them to make progress on their goals? So was that IEP reasonably calculated to provide the child an educational benefit? And then from there, did we give the services that were offered on the IEP? So did the services that we provided comport with the IEP? Um, There's been cases that have come out in the Ninth Circuit over the last few years that that reiterate the idea that an IEP is a contract between the school district and the parent. So where we write something in the IEP, whether it's a supplementary aid or support modification and accommodation or services, we are then obligated to provide that service or that support, whatever it is. If we've got goals that are written in the IP, we're obligated to work on those goals. And if something happens in the interim between IP meetings, then it's our obligation to reconvene that, that, that prevents us, sorry, if something happens between IP meetings that prevents us from from supporting the child or from implementing a service or from working on a particular goal, then the requirement is that we reconvene the IEP team and talk about what needs to be done. Is it that the goal is not appropriate any longer and we need to discontinue or revise the goal? Or is there something missing in that child's services that prevents us from being able to implement the goal? Or did something change in that child's life? Now they're on home hospital. And so we're not able to work on a goal that has the child their, their bed ridden because they've maybe had surgery. And now we're not able to work on that goal that has the child, you know, walk three steps and kick a ball, right? Because they're in the bed. So there's a reason that something changed. And so we should be reconvening the IEP team meeting because the services in the IEP must comport, the services provided must comport with the IEP. That's the substantive side. Okay. So, um, but the, both the procedural and substantive compliance components came out of a couple of U.S. Supreme Court cases. Um, one of them is the Raleigh decision. And I wish if we were in person, this would be, I, I love I, I love to be in person because then we can have discussions about, you know, we can be more interactive, but this is the world we live in. And, and this allows us also to do an international or a national type of conference without um, everybody having to travel. So I know there's Benefits either way, but I would if I were in person i'd be asking you folks how many of you are familiar with the Raleigh decision, so that was from 1982. Um, And basically it's a US Supreme Court case that kind of made its way through all the the lower courts and and the premise of the case had to do with a deaf student who's um, who received she was in primarily general education classes. And she was receiving B's and some A's, but her parents felt like she was capable of being a straight A student. What she needed was a sign language interpreter in her classroom. But the school district said, well, wait a minute, she's making progress, she's making progress on her goals. She's passing all of her classes with above average grades. The supports that we have in place are sufficient to allow her to do that. This case, like I said, makes its way all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court at that time basically said, we are not required to maximize a child's potential. This child, Amy Raleigh, may be capable of being a straight-A student, but the school district, public school district's obligation is to, um, is to ensure that she has sufficient supports and services to allow her to make progress um, on her goals, and to um, continue to make progress in the general education curriculum. The idea was that um, it doesn't have to be the best program out there, but it must be more than just trivial, more than um, um, yeah, more than merely trivial educational advancement. It's gotta be appropriate. And that was the only decision that we had for, from the US Supreme Court as it relates to the offer of free appropriate public education. The Raleigh decision also had some other components to it, and they are the ones that said, you know, the the provision of FAPE includes the substantive and the procedural side. So then we don't get another FAPE decision out of the U.S. Supreme Court until 2017. And that was obviously very recently, and that's the Andrew F. decision. And Andrew F. came out of a Colorado case. And basically, they did not overrule the Raleigh decision, but what they did is just more refined what is requirement what's required in order to provide a student a FAPE. And the court in the Andrew F decision said, okay, Amy Raleigh was a great decision and we still agree with it, but Amy was a student who was in the general education curriculum, in the general education classes and passing all of her classes. And so for Amy Raleigh, the determination of whether she received a FAPE was heavily reliant upon the fact that she was able to maintain in a general education environment, pass all her classes and move forward and eventually graduate from high school. But not all students fall in that category. And so um, under Andrew F, and I'm gonna give you, uh, and and I'm sorry, we should be uh, moving to slide 10, and then I'm gonna move right on to slide 11. Okay, Um, under Andrew F we've got a fifth grade student who is eligible for special education under autism. And so he's got a little more significant Impact on his academic performance than a student, than than Amy Raleigh did. Uh, He had multiple behaviors that inhibited his ability to access his curriculum. Um, As you can see from the slide, he screamed, he climbed over furniture, he ran away from school. So there were some pretty significant um, uh, behaviors that he was engaging in, and that obviously impacted his educational progress. but one of the problems with the Andrew F decision is he was in fifth grade and up through fourth grade, he was in the public school system. And basically um, for the past three to four years, his present levels had not really been updated. His goals remained the same year after year. And the, the position of the school district at the time was that he really wasn't making progress. So we were just continuing to work on the same skills, which we do sometimes. We do continue to work on the same skills for longer than a one-year period. But when we do that, it's important that we update that IEP. But that wasn't really happening with Andrew F. It was just the same present levels and the same goals year after year. And so the parents pulled him out and put him in a non-public school and then sought reimbursement from the school district and district denied, and then they ended up in due process, it makes its way all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And like I said, now we're on slide 12, the U.S. Supreme Court recognized that there are differences in students, lots of different levels. We've got students with intellectual disabilities, um, multiple disabilities, significant impairments, all the way up to students who have speech and language services only and no other services on their IEP. And so, we can't have the same expectation for all of those students. They didn't go so far as to say there should be a different measurement, but expectations may be different. And so what the Andrew F. decision came out with was in order to meet their substantive obligations to provide FAPE, school districts must offer an IP that is reasonably calculated to enable a child to make progress appropriate in light of his or her circumstances. So we can take the fact that a child may be particularly low functioning into consideration and their progress should be measured based upon their ability level. But the court said, well, wait a minute though, I don't wanna give the wrong impression. This doesn't mean that for a student who's fairly low functioning, we can just have really low expectations and not, you know, and then be able to say, yep, you made all those goals, you know, but they really weren't significant. So they did add in the language that said that the program still needs to be appropriately ambitious. So it's kind of a, you know, it's a little expectation of both. Um, So reasonably calculated, appropriately ambitious. That's our goal when drafting an IEP, okay? Um, And so here we are. I can see now that which slide you're on. That's what I see. And then um, and then I've got my own one going too. So in the next slide, 14. Um, So there are timelines that are relevant for IEP team meetings and just providing uh, special education in general. I'm not going to go all of them Um, in California the best place to look for timelines if you have any questions about them would be an education code 563 i'm sorry 56043 it basically lays out all of the timelines it's a it's a it's a great code section to know and when i was a young attorney i printed it all out. and I had it in front of me so I could refer to it all the time. They, they align with the IDEA, but it's just a place. If you're a California um, person, that would be the place that you look. Um, So basically one of the timeline requirements is that we have to um, um, uh, develop an assessment plan within 15 calendar days of the date we received the referral for special education. Um, Exception 10 out of 10. I'm not sure. what I meant by that but what I can tell you is if there unless there's a break in the school year or a break in the student's attendance of more than five days so that that break in the school year of more than five days stops the calendar stops the clock for the assessment plan so in most cases winter break would stop the calendar summer break would stop the calendar and in some cases spring break where your school district if you have you know, either two weeks spring break, or in some cases, some school districts have um, five days, a week and a day for spring break. In those cases, it would stop the calendar for the for providing the assessment plan. Um, but other than that, anything less than that, it's it's 15 calendar days. Parents have um, 15 calendar days to consent to the I, to the assessment plan. Now, there is no big storm that happens or anything if they don't sign within 15 calendar days. But if a school district is thinking about filing for due process over the right to conduct an assessment where they don't have permission from the parent to do so, they must give the parent at least 15 calendar days before they can then they can take that step. And then once we have a signed assessment plan, we know we have 60 calendar days to conduct that assessment and hold an IEP team meeting. Again, if there are breaks in the school year of more than five days, that stops the clock and it picks back up again. Um, And if if you're in a state other than California, there may be specific requirements in your state, but um, this is is the requirement under the IDEA. Districts must convene, uh, so then in addition, and I believe this is California related, districts must convene an IPT meeting within 30 calendar days of a parent's request that they do so. And again, there is an exception or a stop in the clock if there's um, a break in the school year. So those are just some of the um, timeline requirements that are important to keep in mind. And then it's not unusual that parents take the position, oh, I'm upset about something and I want an emergency IEP right now. Um, and it's important to understand there really are no emergency IEPs except in one circumstance. And that is um, if if the school district is required to go hands-on with a student for behavioral purposes, there's different, um, different uh techniques that school districts use. So there's CPI and other forms of restraints, basically. So if a school district of if a, if a school site has to go hands on with a student, then there is an obligation, at least in California, that you must um, schedule an IEPT meeting to occur within two days to talk about what happened and whether Um, A functional behavior analysis needs to be conducted and a behavior intervention plan needs to be provided. So in that circumstance, that's when you have to do an emergency IEP. But otherwise, there is no requirement for emergency IEP. If a parent makes a request for an IEP, the school district has 30 days to convene that meeting. OK, now I say that, and, but I'm a big proponent on working collaboratively with parents. So understand that. So if you can schedule a meeting faster, obviously, you're going to want to do that because relationships with the parents are um, are very important. If you're a unified school district, under the IDEA, you may have this child in your program from the time they're three until they're 22 years old. That's 19 years. It's a long time to be working with a particular family. I like to say it's longer than most marriages, but I myself have have passed that. I've been doing this since before I had passed that, but I've since passed that. Um, So relationships are very important. Um, So if you can work with the parent, if you can schedule a meeting to occur quickly when there's something that they're very upset about, you obviously want to do so. But I just want to make sure that people understand under the law, there's only one time that you have to have what's called an emergency IEP. And that's when you've gone hands-on with the student. Okay. Um, The meeting notice, critical component that sometimes we take for advance, um, for for granted. Um, basically, there are legal requirements for uh, meeting notice, and those things are part of that procedural obligation for school districts. So. Um, the um, what I see sometimes are some really great case carriers who do a good job of working with their families. They reach out to the parents and say, "Okay, Johnny's IEP is coming up, and we're looking at next Tuesday. Does that work for you? Yeah, works for us. Okay, one o'clock. We'll all be here. We'll see you, you know, at one o'clock." And then maybe they forget to send out the meeting notice. That right there is a procedural violation. So if if the parent ultimately shows up at the IEP meeting and everything goes forward, it might be considered one of those procedural violations that doesn't raise to the level of a denial of faith, but the meeting notice itself is a procedural requirement. Um, Scheduling the meeting is expected to be at a time that's mutually agreed upon between the parent and the district. Um, Typically, what I recommend is you send out a meeting notice for a date that works for the district and if the parent is available at that point in time great but be open to all you know rescheduling the meeting for the parent they come back to you and say well i'm not available on tuesday at one o'clock i can't meet until thursday or friday then to the extent that you can you work with them and you, you 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 find a mutually agreed upon time and date What gets a little tricky, at least here in California, I don't know about in other places, but sometimes um, parents' availability puts us past our annual date or our triennial date. And there are ways in which you can kind of um, work together to try to, to make sure that you stay compliant with your annual dates and triennials, and yet still respect the parent's right to participate and accommodating their schedule. So we can talk about things like that through the question and answer if that's something that people are interested in. The IPT meeting notice must indicate the purpose of the meeting, time, location, and who will attend. And by who will attend, it's the title, not necessarily the name of the person. Um, The purpose seems like, yeah, that's pretty simple. This is an annual or this is a triennial, but this does get us sometimes the purpose because maybe, somebody didn't realize the child's annual was coming up. And so they were already planning an amendment and they put the meeting notice, just says that it's going to be an amendment. But then between the time they sent the meeting notice and the time they held the meeting, they realized, oh shoot, the um, annual is due. So let's go ahead and have the meeting as an annual. You know what? i much rather you catch that before the meeting starts than miss your annual date. But what you're gonna wanna do is you're gonna wanna send out a new meeting notice that clarifies this is an amendment to talk about behavior, but we're also going to do the annual because the parent has a legal right to know the purpose of the meeting. we do not typically uh, list in the parents' invitees. So I, you know, as an attorney, I can. I, I I suspect that you know that I only get involved in the more difficult cases. And it's amazing to me. I was at an IEP meeting. Well, we were trying to have an IEP meeting a couple of weeks ago, and so we're all scheduled to start. Everybody's sitting in the conference room. The parent was going to participate virtually. She gets on the meeting and she says, "Where's you know who sent the meeting notice to my my attorney?" And we said, well, nobody, you know, and, and she gets angry and she starts, I'm going to take over this meeting. And, uh, you know, I said, well, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. I said, you know, that's your representative. It's up to you to invite your representative. So you're not obligated to put a parent's invitees in the meeting notice. Your obligation is put to put the parent on notice of who the district is inviting to the meeting. Okay. Um, Now, That doesn't mean that there aren't times when I've got certain attorneys that I work with regularly and when a district is scheduling IEP meetings that, you know, is going to have attorneys that they say, hey, reach out to Michelle and see when she's available. You guys let us know when you're available and we'll schedule the meeting on that day. So that does happen. We do that sometimes. But as a legal requirement, you are not expected to invite the parents' representatives just the district's representatives, okay? So who must attend an IEP meeting? The expectation is that the parents are there and I'm gonna talk a little bit about when um, a parent is absolutely not available and what we do about that. Um, A special education teacher or provider of the student um, because it could be it, it is possible that the student's not actually getting academic instruction. So you know, maybe they're a speech and language student that's not receiving any academic support. So um, you wouldn't have to have a special ed teacher, you'd have a provider there, you'd have the speech pathologist, right? But for the most part, for most kids, it's a special education teacher and the providers, not less than one regular education teacher of uh, the student and a district representative qualified to either provide or supervise the provision of special education, who has knowledge of the general education curriculum and the availability of other resources within the district. This is your, this is your typically your site administrator sometimes it's a district level administrator but that's who that person is um you can see here that under regular one regular education teacher it says avoid serial attendance so sometimes what i see in high school districts is you know um, we'll have a floating sub and that person comes um like they're they're covering the classes and so You know, the English language arts teacher will come in for five to ten minutes, present on what they're doing, and then they go back to their class. The sub moves to the math teacher and so on and so forth that technically meets the legal requirement for having a general education teacher. And oftentimes it makes parents happy because they get to hear from all the different teachers. Um, But it's not the requirement. The requirement is you have at least one. And so. Depending on your school district, the way your school district is run, and the way your IPs are, even individual school sites, um, you know, sometimes it may be easier to have one general education teacher that represents the other general education teachers, and other times having the floating sub. My concern with the floating sub approach is that no one general education teacher is actually listening to the whole meeting. So, Um, and, and, and engaged in and providing their feedback and thoughts on the meeting, but if it's the way that it works best in your district, it's okay. It's just not, to me, it's not ideal. The general education teacher has a role in an IEP process. It's not just to present how the student's doing in their class. It is to talk about what general education curriculum looks like, to listen to the needs of the student, and to determine whether or not this student could be in the general education environment at some point of the day and how that would look and what types of supports they would need. So um, having that floating sub sometimes doesn't fully meet that obligation, but it does technically meet the legal <laughs> obligation of having a, at least one general education teacher at the IEPT meeting. And other than that, if we're in a In a a triennial or initial or a meeting where an assessment report is being reviewed, then obviously we need an individual who can interpret the instructional implications of the evaluation results. So basically they review their reports and talk about their recommendations to the IEP team. And then, actually, this shouldn't necessarily, the next one shouldn't necessarily be under who must attend, but who can attend, and that's other individuals who have knowledge or expertise regarding the child. And so that's what allows a parent to bring their own advocate, to bring an attorney, to bring Aunt Betty, um, to bring an outside assessor that they um, wanted to have at the meeting, or it's also what allows the school district to have an attorney at the meeting. Sorry, I, you should be in on slide 18. Yeah, um, and so that it, the determination of who has of this person's knowledge and special expertise is decided by whichever entity is inviting that person. So, as a school district, sometimes I come into meetings almost always when there's an attorney on the other side. But there are times when things have been so difficult between the parent and the district that they have me come to the IEP in order to help move the process along. And um, in those cases, I've had situations where parents really challenge, well, why do you have an attorney here? What special knowledge or expertise do you have? And, you know, we waste a whole bunch of time talking about that. But um, I just explained to them that it's up to the district to decide if I have knowledge or expertise and and I'm their representative, just like you have the right to bring your own. So um, you do. The district does have the right to do that. And then in some circumstances, the student is an appropriate member. Right. If we're talking about transition planning, the student must be invited to the IEP. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, parent participation is very important. School districts must take steps to ensure parent participation and afford the parent the opportunity to participate in the IEP. Historically, prior to COVID, right, our whole world now is going to be before COVID and after COVID, right, because it changed so many things in our world. COVID has definitely opened up the ability to have... virtual virtual meetings. We didn't really have those very often um, when prior to COVID. A parent could participate over the phone, but we rarely had them participate virtually, but they certainly can do that now. Um, and so we need to work with the parent and try to encourage them and make accommodations for them to participate to the extent Possible and failure to do that is considered a denial of faith. So that would be if we just um, maybe just send out one meeting notice, we don't hear back from the parents. So then we go ahead and hold the meeting without the parent that would not fare well for the school district if challenged later. So um, There are circumstances where we are able to have a meeting without the parent, but for the most part, we have to have very good documentation of our efforts to get them there. I'm going to move slides. So sometimes a parent just flat out refuses to attend. and so, what should you do if they just say, "I'm not coming to your meeting"? I, you know, I've gone to all these meetings; they're useless. You know, who knows what's going on? But they're they're just refusing to attend. First thing you should be doing, or the case carrier should be doing, is trying to determine why. What is what is it that they're frustrated about? Give them opportunities. If it's a matter of they're not able to take off time from work and come to the district, and it takes so much time, give them opportunities to participate via telephone or video. Um, they can send a representative on their behalf, but if they're if it's somebody who doesn't otherwise have educational rights for the student, they've got to uh, um, send something in writing allowing this person to um, to support a student on their behalf. Um, they also can. Um, it, you know, kind of a last case scenario, provide something in writing that they want the IEP team to consider as part of their um their development of the full IEP. So there are just multiple ways that we can really encourage parents to participate in some way or another. And then you've got some situations where we're either not hearing back from the parent or um They haven't come right out and said, we refuse to attend, but we're not able to get them to confirm an IEP meeting. So there are obligations on the part of the district to make a good faith effort to get the parent there prior to holding a meeting without the parent. And so what you want to have is a log of telephone calls that have been made to the parent in order to try to get them to the meeting. And any documents that were sent out, so copies of the meeting notices, if they were emailed, if they were put in the US mail, those types of things should be included in the student's records, the, the CUM file, not the CUM file, I'm sorry, their special education file, so that if holding the meeting without the parent is later challenged, you've got evidence of your efforts. And it's gotta be enough to be reasonably considered, you know, an, a multiple good faith effort. Um, sometimes I hear school districts say things like, "Well, as long as I send out three meeting notices, that's the requirement before I hold the meeting." There's nothing in the Ed Code that says that. It really is, or not just the Ed Code, but the IDEA. It really is, you know, um, a, a more um, sub, uh, subjective type of standard on whether or not the judge who's reviewing the case determines that sufficient efforts were made it's not three meeting notices it's did you make phone calls to the parent to try to get them to come did you send them the meeting notice not just in the kid's backpack but did you actually send it to them to their home did somebody go to the house and talk to the parent or call them at work which I never really recommend but sometimes it depends on the relationship with the family you just have to have a documentation of your reasonable efforts and if you cannot get the parent to participate then at some point you should be holding the IEP meeting because, um, failing to have the meeting with the argument that the parent didn't make themselves available is a substantive denial of FAPE. It's a procedural issue and a substantive because you didn't get an offer of FAPE on the table. So it's a balance that you have to go through. So, um, after these documented efforts, um, you can, um, Consider audio recording the meeting, and then you can provide that copy to the parent. So we're going to go ahead and have the meeting. Send a copy of the IEP and possibly a recording of the of the discussions. That's that's not a bad idea. I've definitely had to be at meetings where the parent either refused to participate or didn't, and we we go through the whole meeting as though the parent were there. It usually goes pretty quickly because there's no you know stopping and questions and all that stuff. We just get through the meeting. The IP is developed, and then what you do is you provide a copy of the IP to the parent and, and let them know that if after they've reviewed the IP, they believe that the, the um, they believe that they um, want to discuss the IP, that another meeting will be scheduled. Okay. Um, and if the parent refused to meet and you're, you held the meeting without them, then when you send the IEP, you should send a prior written notice with it. This is what we're proposing. This is why we're proposing it. Here's what we relied on in coming to this decision. Here's a copy of your procedural safeguards. Here's some other things that we considered. And there were other factors or there weren't other of the factors. So we send that out along with the IEP. And Hopefully the parent signs the IEP and sends it back. And in some cases they do. Um, There are times when we have to excuse IEP team um, members, those mandatory members that I was talking about. There's two ways to excuse them, two types of excusals. So one is where the um, the meeting involves the members area. So we've got an annual coming up and the child has speech and language services, but the speech pathologist is not going to be available for the um, for the meeting. So what's required is that the district send the parent notification and a request for excusal. And this should be done prior to the meeting. I typically recommend that it's done with the meeting notice. So we um, ask the parent to excuse the member and the member must also provide the parent and the IEP team information um, to help support the team to You know to help in the development of the IEP that must be provided in writing and prior to the meeting. Now one way of doing that is that the individual puts their information into the present levels, they put in their draft goals, and then that draft IEP is sent to the parent along with the excusal form and the meeting notice so that's a way of doing it otherwise they could type something out but the obligation the expectation is that member provides not not only does the district provide the the excusal form but they the member also provides input for the IEP team um, prior to the meeting and that has to be in writing. And the next one, um, where the meeting does not involve the members area of expertise. So sticking with the speech pathologist or an adaptive physical education therapist, we'll stay with that, sorry. Um, And so the meeting is an amendment to talk talk about a behavior plan, we're going to make um, adjustments to the behavior plan, but there are no behaviors that are impacting the student during their physical education or their adaptive physical education services. So you're not actually a mandatory member. Well, you are still a mandatory member of that IP because you're on that child's service provider list, but your area of expertise is not actually addressed. So you still have to have an excusal. For your participation. The APE teacher would not be required to put anything in writing prior to the meeting, but we still need to get an excusal from the parent, signed by the parent, and the expectation is that that's sent prior to the meeting when we know in advance, right? Sometimes it just happens to be that you wake up in the morning and you have a really bad sore throat and you're not able to go in and and participate in the meeting, and so at that point, then Typically, what happens is the excusal is done during the meeting, but the expectation is it's prior to the meeting um, if if uh, if it's known ahead of time. Okay. Um, the expectation, too, is that the district attendees attend the entire meeting unless excused. Okay, Um, so I know that sometimes we have people that pop in and they um, they give their presentation and then they they need to leave because we have other commitments. And I get it. We're trying to serve other kids. But if the parent does not excuse your participation, then the expectation is you either stay for the entire meeting. Otherwise, we have to stop the meeting and reschedule for another time when you can be there for the entire meeting. Important things to keep to keep in mind. Um, notice of parents' rights; those are proceed; those are provided whenever there's an initial provi- um, initial uh, referral for special education. So that assessment plan should go out with the notice of procedural safeguards. It typically goes out with a prior written notice, notice of procedural safeguards, and then the assessment plan. Um, if there's a complaint, a state complaint in a school year, each time in a school year, we should be sending the procedural safeguards. Um, If there's a due process complaint filed, the parents get a copy of their procedural safeguards. Um, If the parent asks for them, they obviously get them. And then it says at least once a year. Um, So um, that's typically at the annual IEP. As long as we're giving a copy of the procedural safeguards, we should be okay. Most cases, school districts, ensure that the parents have a copy of their um, procedural safeguards every time the team meets. There's multiple meetings needed to complete an annual IP. In most cases that I'm at, they provide copies of the procedural safeguards at every time. You can never provide them too much, but failure to provide them when they're required is a problem, that's a procedural error. And that one can get quite costly for school districts if they forget to give the procedural safeguards, okay? All right. So developing the IP, All of that stuff is really important. I know it's not necessarily, you know, right into the heart of the IP, but it is all very important information to have um, and to be ready for. But now let's get into the development of the IEP. Um, one thing that's important to keep in mind, and again, this is a Ninth Circuit decision, but I would think it would apply in whatever state that you're in. And that is that IEPs are judged from the perspective of the information the team has at the time of the meeting what is objectively known, not what may happen in the future, or things that the parent is asserting is going on, but we don't actually have information about it. So uh, this typically comes up with uh, medical uh, issues that the parent says, well, he has this diagnosis and that diagnosis, but we've, uh, we don't have um, documentation of that information. So What's important to understand is if a parent makes an assertion about something going on with the child, then we have to formally request that information. So if you're at an IP meeting and they're saying, well, wait a minute, you're not addressing the fact that my child has an orthopedic impairment of some sort, right? Something going on with their foot or I don't know, some kind of smaller, not as obvious type of orthopedic impairment everybody on the school site sees that child and they run and they jump and they do everything that every other child does. So we're not aware of that. You know, like it doesn't, it's not obvious to us. Then the expectation would be that during that IEP meeting, somebody asks whether or not the parent has medical documentation to support it and, and to provide it to you. And that should be included in the notes that that question was asked. If for any reason they say they don't have it, or there's a delay in getting it, then there should be, there. what we need to do is actually send out a request for uh, authorization to exchange information with that, that child's doctor, okay? So we have an obligation to ask for the information. And in the eyes of the law, asking for the information means you've documented your efforts to do so. If that information is not provided to you, then you are not held accountable for information you don't have. OK, so it's what's objectively known, not what may happen or what may be asserted. Um, and basically, the idea is um, that an IP is a snapshot of the information that's available to that team at the time of the meeting. OK, and we make our decisions based on that. And then, so now we've got all of our information. It's time to develop the IP, and this is the connecting the dots. Um, We—it's just important when you think about the development of an IP, you obviously keep the procedural stuff in mind. That's important stuff. But in the substantive side, basically, present levels tell us the areas of need, and so our present levels need to be sufficiently, um, ther- you know, thorough enough to ensure that we're identifying all areas of need, right? So the areas of need then tell us um, drive the goals and the um, baselines and all of that, right? So the areas of need identify what areas we need to draft goals in and goals drive placement and services. So when we're making a determination of how much APE we're going to offer to a student, it should be based solely on how much service does that child need in order to meet those goals. So um, it's, you know, sometimes it's, well, I'm on that campus only, I'm only on that campus one time a week, so I can only do once a week. That is not the way that we um, make determinations for the student, right? Um, And other things that I hear is, well, You know, we don't see kids the first couple of weeks of school, and we don't see kids the last couple of weeks of school. And if out of an IEP meeting, I'm not going to see the students. So, you know, I basically take all of that and I calculate it out. And a school year is typically 36 weeks, but I've got all these reasons why I'm not going to be able to meet the child. So I'm going to offer 25 sessions a year because that allows me flexibility and um, it it ensures that the students, you know, Not pulled out during the first couple of weeks of school or the last couple of weeks of school those are all great justifications they are but they're not the basis of how we decide how much service we give the services should be based upon can this child meet those goals with 25 sessions a year if so that's why you offer 25 sessions not for any of those other reasons it's because they can meet the goals with those sessions whether it's small group or individual what do the goals look like? What do they need to meet those goals? So, connecting the dots, keep that in mind. Substantively, we're going to have great IEPs. So, present levels, um, you know, we've got the snapshot rule, it's based upon the information that we have available. So, in an initial um, IEP or a triennial, What I see sometimes is, is it's, it's really much easier to just copy and paste the standardized scores and put it into the present levels. That's not a great practice. It really doesn't mean anything to parents and it really doesn't give us a picture of the student. So um, the the scores are already in your assessment report. They don't need to be reiterated in the IEP document. <clears throat> now, some uh, some uh, not even all all school districts that contract with Safe for their program have this feature, but there are at the beginning of the present levels kind of assessment data. Um, section. And if you have that, that's where you can put assessment data. But the present levels itself, if it's an initial or a triennial, should include information from the report. Don't get me wrong, but a summary. And not even a copy and paste of the whole summary, but maybe a summary of your summary, right? So for reading, we're going to talk about, we're going to summarize how this child functioned through the assessment process in reading, but also include how they're functioning in class in reading and then just keeping it focused more on, you know, adapted physical education. We scroll down, we're in the we're in the gross motor, gross and fine motor section, right? You've done an APE assessment, whether it's an initial or a triennial, um, a summary of how the child's gross motor functioning is. And then if this is a child that you're actually serving, so it's not an initial, it's a triennial, then there should also be a summary of how they're functioning um, in your in the services that you're providing. If it's an initial, then a summary of how, what's going on with them in their regular PE program that they're in. So it should be a combination. When you've got a triennial or initial, it should be a combination of a summary of the assessment information, and then a summary of what's going on with them in whatever program it is that they're in, whether they're in a general ed PE or an adaptive physical education. And then um, it shouldn't be a copy and paste. Um, It should be, like I said, summaries, and we should get a full picture because kids oftentimes perform very differently on standardized tests than they do in practice. And it goes both ways. Sometimes they're higher in practice when they're working in a classroom and they're able to, you know, kind of just follow along with the, with the other students. Um, They do better than they do uh, when they're, you know, standardized testing and vice versa. You know, we see it both ways. But um, so just think about the present levels is that's going to that's going to drive the rest of the IEP. So it needs to be sufficiently thorough enough to give in information on uh, and to determine the areas of need so that we can draft goals and decide what services are appropriate. Um, so um, I thought I had removed this from there, but, you know, we don't want to use outdated. Oh, no, I know why I left it in there. Outdated, inappropriate present levels. I see this sometimes where I'll pull up a, a you know, I'll look at an IP in, from 2022, and it'll have present levels in there from 2021, 2020, 2019, and going back further and further. You don't need any of that stuff in there, whether it's an annual or a triennial. Um, If it's an amendment, that's different, okay. An, An amendment should keep whatever was going on with the student and maybe add to it, okay. But if it's an annual or triennial, all that information from the previous years is already documented in the prior IEPs. The present levels for today's IEP should be about today's present levels. Okay, and once we get into annual, so maybe we had a triennial in 2021 and we're now in 2022 and we had a summary of the triennial information in the present levels. And now we're doing an annual for 2022. And I I know it's, you know, some some people have a, a tendency to to leave that 2021 triennial information in there. You don't need it. Take it out. It's really just inflates the IP necessarily, because that information's already in the last IP. Take it out, and all that matters now is what's going on with that student in the program that he or she is in, whether it's general education PE, or your adapted PE, or a combination of both, specially designed PE, whatever it is, that summary in the uh, present levels for an annual should just be what's going on with that student now, okay? If we meet for an uh, amendment, three months from now, four months from now, six months from now. There's nothing wrong with adding to that and you would leave the annual stuff in there and you would add to it for an amendment. But once we get to the new annual, all that stuff comes out and we put new information. Okay. Um, Yeah, so it's just um, important to make sure that your present levels are thorough and they include the necessary information. so what is what present levels need not include non-school functioning. So this is actually a due process case that came out in California. Um, where the hearing officer the parent wanted information about what was going on at home in the present levels and the district refused to put it in there the hearing officer held that the present levels met all legal requirements because it included summary of district assessments student progress in particular area results of private assessments even if it didn't include the information from the parent okay so legally you're not required to put information that's outside of the school but remember what I said, relationships are really, really important. And we we may have a student for 19 years, right? So when I'm at an IEP meeting, I do a few different things. One thing that I do is I keep a parking lot. So I take all of my notes on yellow pads and I'll, at the beginning of the meeting, I'll take a page, page out. I write the date, I write the student's name, and I say that this is their parking lot. And the purpose of that is to capture things that come up during the meeting, maybe out of time, right? So we're in the talking about the student's preferences and um, strengths and parents are already saying, but I want a, a, a one-to-one aid, right? They wanna jump right to services. So I'll write down in my parking lot, one-to-one aid, parent wants a one-to-one aid to make sure that when we get to that point, we talk about it, okay? Um, And so that's that's one thing that I do. Another thing that I do is when we're talking about uh, present levels. And so let's stay with gross motor. And we're seeing this child is participating. You've done an initial assessment. You're not finding that they qualify. Um, You've observed them in their regular P.E. program and they're able to they may have some. some minor deficits, some, you know, um, yeah, minor deficits, but not to the level of requiring adapted physical education. You've documented that in the um, present levels and parents as well. At home, you know, he's trying to play on a baseball team for the city league and he can't even hold a bat and he can't run to the bases or something, right? And so they have concerns about that. Um, technically, you don't have to Put that in the present levels, but if you're, you know, trying to really, in, you know, impress upon the parent that they are a member of the team, there's nothing wrong with saying, "Parent reported that, you know, dot dot dot." It, it's fine. We address the things that are actually going on at school. But we also wanna make sure we understand where the parent is coming from, why they're concerned about something, why they're frustrated. And documenting it in the present levels is okay to do. You just put it down as parent reported, dot, dot, dot. And this comes up a lot with like reading and math and there's differences between how the school sees the student and how the parent sees the student. And rather than taking this hard line rule, nope, nope, we don't put those things in the present levels. I usually recommend to school teams that you just say, parent reported the child is reading war and peace at home. Even if they're only learning to recognize their letter at school, we've just got that information. And sometimes it's not that big of a stark difference and and maybe they are able to do more at home. And so then we have a conversation about what is it you're doing with them that's getting them to do something we're not able to get them to do. So anyway, legally not required to put anything except what's going on at school, but from a relationship standpoint, you may want to include additional information. It just always identified as parent reports. Um, Present levels did not have to include students' behavior at home. So this is all just goes along with that Fullerton decision that we got. So um, again, there's the legal requirements, and then there are, You know, ways in which we go over and above that in order to really collaborate with our parents and make sure that we're serving students and understanding our parents' concerns and things like that. Um, Incomplete or repeated present levels are not necessary. So we talked about this a little bit already. One is repeating... What was going on the prior years, right? You know, so we don't need that in there anymore. Once it's once we've moved on to the new annual, the only information that should be in those present levels is what's um, current. Um, repeating information from the um, from the assessment reports is not necessary. We just summarize and we put it in layman's term so that parents understand. Um, And then incomplete would be, this is something I see, there's the copy and paste of assessment results into the um, present levels and nothing in there about how the child's functioning in their general education PE program or something like that. So both of those are bad. We want to avoid them. We want to have concise information about how this child is functioning today without repeating stuff that doesn't need to be added to the present levels. So now we've got our present levels nice and clean and they're they're, um, they're complete. We've identified the areas of need. And so we're gonna get into drafting uh, goals and baselines. And I can tell you, I can do a presentation on goals and baselines alone, um, but kind of to summarize how I usually recommend, and it, you're gonna see it through these slides, but just to kind of give you a little sneak peek, um, What I recommend is you write the goal first. So sometimes what I see is we just copy and paste the present level into the baseline. That's not necessarily a baseline. So the the baseline should be more specific to the goal. And so what I recommend to teams is write the goal first and say, within a year, we want this child to do what? And then back that goal out and say, and as of today, this is what they're doing. And that's going to ensure that your baseline and your goal are aligned with each other. Because baselines are equally as important as the goal itself. The following year, when we're measuring progress, we need to look and say, here's where they were. And here's where they are now. They made progress or they didn't. Right. So just kind of that's the way I recommend that school teams do it. So, um, care and precision are required. So now I'm into um, slide 40 um, baselines are essential to be able to determine whether the student made progress without baselines. It's really hard to determine whether the kid made progress, right? So it's not unusual. I'm at a meeting and the team comes in and says, oh yeah, this was, you know, on, um, on this goal, the child made progress. Um, they either met or partially met or something. And they just kind of move on from there without really describing, um, without really describing what that progress looked like. So um, I know in SACE um, and not all software programs, so there's web IP and there's Easy IEP, so there's a multitude of uh, IP software programs that we use in California, Those SACE is the biggest one. And I can imagine there's even more in other states that I'm not even familiar with. So not all of them have this, but I know under SACE, if you have that page that allows for progress on goals, that there's, uh, there's room to put a narrative of, of where, where the child is. Now, if they met the goal, Typically we don't have to put a lot of information in the narrative, but if they didn't meet the goal, but we want to establish that they made progress, that's when that baseline and where are they today are so critical. So if you have the ability to add in that, that piece on that um, on that page that where you mark met, not or met, partially met or not met, if you can add in a short little narrative, it's really um the cleanest and most thorough way to ensure the parent is. Is, is informed on what's going on with their child. So, um, and like I said, baseline should align to the measurement of the goal. And so now I'm on 41. Um, so uh, we pull the information for the baselines from the present levels, but it should not be just a copy and paste. Um, and again, they have to be measurable, just like the goal. This is why over time I've said, what we should do is write the goal first because we already have the area of need. We know we've got some ideas from the present levels of what that goal is going to look like. We write the goal and then back it out for the baseline. Um, so, and that's to make sure that the two align with each other. Saying things like, James is inconsistent um, in meeting his bathroom needs, or is, um, and sometimes engages in parallel play. Sam can only verbally identify letters of the alphabet. Those all sound like they're they're baselines, right? They sound like this is telling us that he's not necessarily always toileting and going to the bathroom at the right time, um, that Anne has problems with parallel playing, um, and that Sam is um, able to verbally identify letters, but that doesn't tell us really what they're doing as far as writing those letters down or um, being able to pick them out of a field of three or however, you know, um, we want them to do whatever that goal is. Um, So it's just as important to have a measurable baseline as it is to have a measurable goal. And so if you're using um, um, a percentage as your measurement tool for the goal, then there should be a percentage in the baseline as well. So James is meeting his bathroom needs 30% of the time and maybe a little more description about what's going on um, and engages in parallel play, you know, 60% of the time. We wanna get her to 80% of the time. So um, if Sam is only verbally identifying letters and now we want him to start writing letters, then it's okay to say, Sam is able to verbally identify letters. However, at this point in time, he's only able to write letters A, B, C, and X. You know, I don't know, but, um, and and be more specific so that the baseline aligns with the goal. So uh, writing clear goals is important. So um, be specific about, so for the baseline, be specific specific about the current um, levels of functioning. Um, be specific about what the child is expected to do, what progress we want to see um, the child make, and how we intend for them to get there. And then the objectives are where you're using objectives. Um, most districts are still using objectives um, with all goals. They're a great measurement tool to make sure that we're 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 meeting the child's meeting the goals along the way, or if they're not, it alerts us that they're not and maybe triggers the team to have an IEP team meeting, but they're not always required any longer since the um, revision to the IEP, IDEA in 2005. But basically, the purpose of objectives is to identify reasonable steps between the baseline and the goal, right? Um, and sometimes it's just a matter of breaking down the percentage, right? We want them to do it at 60%, 70%, and then the goal is 80%. But Oftentimes, and I, I I like to see objectives that actually break down a skill. So ultimately, we want the child to be able to dribble a ball down, um, you know, for 10 feet. Um, and so the baseline is that they can dribble the ball in a stationary position um, 40% of the time, like like bounce the ball and catch the ball, bounce the ball and catch the ball 40% of the time. And so what we're going to do is first, the first objective is to increase their accuracy for just doing that. The second objective is having them take a few steps and then eventually the goal is 10, per, 10 steps. And I'm just kind of coming up with an APE type of goal. But see, the, the objective may be actually breaking down the skills that the child needs to acquire in order to get there. So there's different ways of doing objectives, but um, it just depends on what what goal we're working on. So it's important to have, you know, by such and such a date, um, student will, and we've got some slides on that. So we'll get into that right now and just um goals have to be clear um so the content area is identified what area are we working on here the standard area and the number is filled in where we are so goals we do have to have goals that are aligned to state standards um and so where a goal is directly related to a state standard you want to identify the standard In California, we have Common Core, and so there are really great ways to scaffold down skills. So for a student who's maybe in sixth grade, but they're functioning at, say, a kindergarten level or even lower, we can typically take a a, a standard and go back and and, and focus on the skills from where they're functioning at kindergarten level and build them from there, building towards the grade level standard. Um, So where you don't have common core, you've got some other type of curriculum, then it it may be that you're still scaffolding back in order to move the child towards that grade level standards. Um, And then you have reasonable expectations for the student, but don't forget, Andrew F, sufficiently challenging. Okay, sufficiently challenging. So it doesn't have to be beyond the child's needs. This kid who's in sixth grade, who's functioning at a kindergarten level, we don't have to write a goal for sixth grade level. We've got to write a goal that's reasonably sufficiently um, challenging that's going to move him or her towards the sixth grade level. Okay. Um, being co- be, be careful about which boxes you check. Like, you know, is this uh, a goal that's related to the to um the academic curriculum? Is it a non-academic goal? Filling in things like who's responsible for the goal. All of those things are those procedural requirements that were required that, that are expected um so here are some examples of where the goal must tie into the Baseline and I really try to keep these focused mainly on Ape type goals so the goal is it's a gross motor goal so we've identified the area by such and such a date student will walk on a four inch balance beam for no less than eight feet in four out of five trials okay so that's our goal um what it what did I do here? By such and such a date. Oh, oh, okay. Sorry, sorry, sorry. And then the baseline in this one, in a wrong one, is the bot scores, right? Your bot two standard score. Um, and I, I, I know that the bot two is a tool that's used by APES, but I don't. I could. I didn't have any APE assessments here when I was updating these, um, these materials, so I just kind of threw out there. But what I'm trying to say here is, standard scores are not a baseline standard scores are not a baseline. It should be, this is where you would look at, okay, right now, can the child walk on a balance beam at all? Or maybe they're still just learning how to um, walk in a straight line, but not in an elevated balance beam. And so your baseline should be focused on what can they do now? And in a year from now, we want them to walk on a four-inch balance beam. Okay. similarly, by such and such a date, student will catch a six inch playground ball with both hands from five feet with 80 percent accuracy. And then an incorrect type of uh, present level that I might see would be students working on working hard on holding and throwing a ball. And then he's able to demonstrate the ability to walk up and down stairs with rotating feet. This is a a perfect example of when we've taken maybe a present level and just copied the present level into the baseline. It doesn't align to the goal. Okay, as opposed to the third one here by such and such a date student will kick a stationary ball while walking in a forward direction in four out of five trials. The baseline, Josh is able to kick a stationary ball from a standing position with 75% accuracy or in 75% of opportunities, or I could have said three, uh, you know, six out of 10 or whatever, whatever 75%, (laughs) I'm trying to blank, not a mathematician, but you see what I'm hoping, I can't see people's faces, but I'm hoping you can see the differences between those two, that that baseline is directly aligned to the goal. Shouldn't be standardized tests, standardized scores, and it shouldn't just be a copy and paste of everything we had from the present level. It should be specific to the goal. And there's something called a stranger test. So when you're writing a goal, it's important that you write it in a way that's understandable to people who didn't write the goal, okay? So somebody, if this student were to move from your school site to another school site within your district or to another school district in the state or outside of the state, somebody, some other adaptive physical education teacher should be able to pick up that IEP and implement that goal. Okay. And so you want to write your goal clear enough to allow somebody else to be able to implement your goal. Okay. And this was just a decision that came out of California, but it's a good one that would apply no matter where you are. Okay, so now you've got your goals and we know that goals drive placement and services. So um, it's important whenever we're looking at placement and or services, we've got to keep in mind the least restrictive um, environment mandate and basically that special education classes, separate schooling or other removal of the student from um, the general education environment occurs only if the nature and severity of their disability is such that um, Education in the general education classes cannot be achieved satisfactorily, even with even with supplementary aids and services. So students um, to, must be included, well, to the maximum extent appropriate, students with disabilities must be educated with non-disabled peers. Um, regular education with typical peers is the presumption. It's not a right. And I hear it sometimes. If you know the child can earn the right to mainstream into another, uh, into the general education setting, that's not the way it's supposed to be. It should be the presumption that they're in the general education setting, unless they can't be served in that environment. And that's when we pull them out and give them separate services. And this applies equally to to, to physical education. And what I was pulling out was. So Garth Timeson sent us uh, some questions, which we'll get to at the end here. And he sent some documents um, that came from a, an agency called the um, called OSEP, which is the Office of Special Education Programs. And it just reiterates what I had already put in here, which is that this applies to physical education. And so I just want to read it really quick. So under Title 34, which are the federal regulations, section 300.108, Um, It's talking about least restrictive environment. And it basically says each child with a disability must be afforded the opportunity to participate in the regular physical education program that's available to non-disabled peers unless the child is enrolled in a full-time separate facility. So if they're at a non-public school or residential treatment center, right? They're probably not going to have general education or the child's needs... The child needs specially designed physical education as prescribed in the child's IEP so it just kind of reiterates the position that APE is also you know under the LRE mandate so we still have to keep kids in the general education physical education program as much as is appropriate for that child and it's important that general education teachers know and are trained on how to differentiate instruction. And in your world, that would be their physical instruction, right? So if the general education teacher may be in in the elementary school setting, and it's the general education teacher that may be running the the PE program, then it may be that what you're doing is providing some training for the gen ed teachers to know how to differentiate the instruction to support students with uh, disabilities, physical disabilities, similarly in the high school setting too. Placement decisions cannot be made solely on the factors of the category of disability, the availability of special education related services, right, that's that, well, I'm only on that campus one time a week, so we only gets one time a week. That's not the determining factor. The availability of space or administrative convenience, any of that stuff, it really is that connecting the dots. The amount of APE that you offer is based upon the goals that you wrote. The goals you wrote are based upon the areas of need that were identified by developing those present levels, okay? So important to keep that in mind. In selecting the least restrictive environment, we also must think about the harmful effects of the child of pulling them out of that general education setting. And that must be documented in the IEP as well. Um, And so LRE, I'm just gonna talk about this really quick, is, um, was originally talked about in the Rachel H factors, that was that decision out of No, that's not the, I'm sorry, it's a different decision. It's a Rachel H decision, also a Ninth Circuit decision, but this one was actually codified into the IDEA um, when the IDEA was... was revised in 2004 to take effect in 2005. And so there's basically four factors in determining whether or not the child should be in the general education setting or needs to be pulled out. So we look at the educational benefit of the child for the child to be in that placement, in that general education setting. Will they get an educational benefit from that setting? Um, We look at the non-academic benefits. Is there a social or communication or self-confidence basis for keeping them in the general education setting? Is there a benefit to them in that way? Um, and then those two things kind of, you know, we're, we're looking at both of those. The effect of this, the student has on the teacher and the other kids in the classroom. I can tell you none of these are actually officially weighted, but they're weighted. The important factors are those first two. Can they get an educational benefit in the general education setting? Can they get a non-educational benefit? But we can also take into consideration the impact of the student on the teacher and the other kids in class, but it has to be a pretty um, significant and extreme impact. It's not just simply a situation where we've got behavioral issues that need to be addressed by the IEP team through a behavior plan or something like that. It's got to be something pretty significant to warrant moving them out if the basis, like if we were to decide, yes, they could have an academic benefit. Sure, they'd probably get a non-academic benefit, but their impact on the students is so severe that we're going to pull them out that's what I'm saying. It's got to be pretty darn severe. And then cost of education in the general education environment is one of the four factors, but it's rarely actually considered. So we just kind of, it's there, so I don't want to ignore it, but it's rarely considered. So looking at educational benefit, can the student access the curriculum and receive an academic benefit in a general education PE class? Can they follow instructions or can they learn how to do so? Can they engage in the physical activities, maybe not to the same level as the other students, but they're still learning and engaging and getting an academic benefit, then that student's primary physical education services should be in that general education PE setting. And you may be pushing in to the, to the general education setting, or your services may be more collaborative and doing some of that training for the gen ed teacher. Okay, so that's a first factor. Can they get an educational benefit? non-educational benefit. Are there behavioral models that would be particularly good for this student? Communication models. Um, You know, will this increase their self-esteem and their socialization skills? Um, So it's more than just sitting there in order to have, you know, some some non-direct interaction with non-disabled peers, but are they actually getting a non-academic benefit? And if that's the case, then they may be appropriate in the general education PE, but they're not necessarily getting a huge academic benefit, but there is a big social or non-academic benefit. That's a student who probably needs aid support and could be in the general education PE, but with, with support, right? But they are getting a benefit. Um, effect on other students, I told you, uh, it has to be fairly extreme. And so I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. But this slide covers what that looks like. And then the cost is rarely looked
0: at. Does uh-huh. the um, Sacramento versus Rachel F. case, does that hold oh. any water outside of California?
1: Rachel H.? Yes, yeah. outside of California, yes, in two ways. One, the it's a ninth circuit case. so it's Idaho, Washington, California, Hawaii, Oregon, um, so, and Arizona. So all any state that's within the Ninth Circuit is directly it's directly impactful on them. However, it's also it's been codified into the IDEA too. I'm almost positive now now I'm second guessing myself. I'm not 100% sure, actually, if it's been codified in the IDEA, but yes, any one of the West Coast states that fall under the Ninth Circuit, it's, it's precedential on them. I think I'm confusing the target range criteria about um, whether a procedural violation that's been codified in the IDEA. And now that I think about it, Rachel H, I'm not sure that it has, but outside of the Ninth Circuit, it's still a good general rule. If you're, if you're in a district outside of the Ninth Circuit and you follow those um, criteria in determining the least restrictive environment, I cannot imagine that you would be, um, you'd receive a negative um, response to that if okay. you were challenged on it, okay? Great, thanks for clarifying. Sure, more like um, influential or, you know, um, it, um, yeah, it's not precedential, but it is a good practice. And I just like to remind people that LRE changes just like students change, right? So LRE should be looked at each year. And even if a student maybe wasn't prepared for, wasn't gonna get an academic or non-academic benefit from a general education PE class last year, doesn't mean that things haven't changed. They haven't matured. And so we should relook at it every single year, okay? And now we're gonna look at services. Um, So an IEP must include a statement of special education and related services and supplementary aids and services to be provided to the student. It has to be in writing in a language that is clear and unambiguous to the parent. So Um, Most, uh, I think all IEP software has a way of writing um, services. For school districts that use web IEP, it's interesting, there's a front page. And I think Easy IEP has this too, where there's a front page that just gives like a little synopsis of the services, and then there'll be a more um, um, thorough services page. Um, In those circumstances, you wanna make sure that what you have on the front is what's in those services page because having like sometimes maybe we updated the services page but we didn't up update that front page it is inconsistent and that would not be considered unambiguous okay so that can result in liability on the part of the district so what it says on the front should be what it says in the services page and similarly for those districts that put the that put it in the narrative of the notes what the offer of fape is make sure that that matches the services page. So that's one place to ensure ambiguity or unambiguous. We want to make sure that it's clear. We have to give an offer to the parent that is clear, that they understand. Another place that this comes up is we'll check mark both individual and small group because you're going to do both of those. You cannot check both of those unless you're giving a real clear explanation of when you do one or the other, and it cannot be reliant upon, well, it's it's based on the service provider's determination. Sometimes what I hear is that, well, the students, you know, it's appropriate for the student to have small group, but sometimes there are no other kids For the group and so I end up seeing the student individually that's why I mark individual and small group. This is another situation where I say that's that's a perfectly fine rationale but it doesn't fly in the legally compliant part. If you're going to do individual and small group you should have two different services listed and I know in California there's a little bit of a snafu because when you're reporting to the state You can't have two different of the same service reporting. I don't get too involved with that, but I've had it come up before. One of them can be listed as non-reportable or something like that, but you should have two different services where it's a situation where group is the appropriate service, but sometimes the student's seen individually because the other kids aren't available, you still put group. You still put group because that's what's being offered in order for that child to uh, meet their goals. And then similarly, push in and pull out. We can't have both of those written unless it's explicitly stated. They're going to have, you know, if they have six sessions of of APE a, a month at 30 minutes a session, three of them will be pushed into the general education setting and three of them will be pulled out. So, specific. Okay. Extended school year um, is important and we it, it is possible that a student would receive adapted physical education for extended school year. So when you're doing when the team is doing an analysis of extended school year, and that is whether the child regresses beyond what a typical child regresses and it takes them longer to recoup the information, part of that analysis should include adapted physical education as well and whether or not APE services are necessary for that child during, during the ESY program. So it's not an automatic that, well, we don't do APE during the summertime. Remember, it's gotta be individualized to the student. Let me try to kind of move things along because I know I am I wanna give plenty of time for questions. So those are the, the services. We want them to be clear, um, non-ambiguous and, um, make sure that they align with their, they're driven by goals. Okay. Um, other parts of the IEP would be um, progress reporting, very important, indicate when uh, progress reporting will occur. That's, that's part of the requirements. We have to let parents know when they'll get progress reporting. Most of the time, it's the same time as when grades are put out, progress report grades and regular grades. Um, and so it's perfectly fine to say that's when progress reports will go out. And then in some circumstances, there may be other Uh, you know, it may be based on the needs of this child, there may be times that we're doing further progress reporting. It just really depends on the student, but it is a required component of the IEP. To me, it's a good practice when you're presenting progress on goals during an IEP team meeting. Um, Start by stating what the baseline was the previous year. So last year he was able to, um, you know, dribble a ball in a standing position, drop, uh, bounce and catch a ball from a standing position. 75% of the time he would catch the ball. And he's not yet able to dribble the ball 10 feet, but he is able to take a couple steps, bounce the ball and catch the ball. And he's just not doing it at the level we wanted him to, but state what the baseline was. And then here's what the progress is. He made partial progress. This is what it looks like. And you're, it's really clear to the parent, this was the baseline. This is where he is. There was definitely progress. Although he didn't meet the goal, here's the progress. This gives a clear picture of the progress that was made. Failure to provide progress reports is can be seen as failure to implement the IP. Um, It can be viewed as a procedural violation that impeded the parent's right to participate because it didn't keep the parent up to speed, um, or uh, up to speed, like um, informed on how the child is doing. And it can be seen as discrimination under Section 504 as well. Progress reports must track the language in the goal. So objective is to catch a six inch playground ball uh, from five feet and then progress reported is still struggling to catch a ball thrown to him or her. But, you know, and so it's, it just says no progress. That's not what we wanna see. Um, instead, we'll engage in passing the ball back and forth with a peer, but it's not yet catching the ball. And if you can say, you know, maybe they're catching it, um, you know, at, at one or two feet, but they're not yet able to do five feet or something. So very, the, the progress reported should be specific to the goal. Other components of the IEP are the special factors, and for the most part, APEs are not super involved in the special factors and assistive technology and behavior may impede you or impede the services you provide, but it's not necessarily your focus. But in the special factors, there is that piece um, that talks about physical education and whether the child will be in general education PE, specially designed PE, or you can put that they would be in adapted physical education. So, had a whole due process case just on this issue. So um, it is a relevant part of the IEP and it's important that we fill it out as well. Um, we wanna uh, avoid, um, oh, so another component of the IP are the supplementary aids and services. And this includes the mod- modifications and or accommodations that a student may get. So accommodations are um, just kind of keep them, um, change, you know, to keep them clear in your mind, which one's which and accommodation is a change in instruction or student output for the student that minimizes the impact of the disability, but it doesn't change the um, expectations, does not fundamentally alter or lower the course standards. Um, And those things need to be memorialized in the IEP. So it could be something that's in the supplementary aid that the student needs to have, An opportunity to rest between activities or something to that effect. I'm trying to keep it in the physical education world, right? That would be an accommodation for this student that doesn't change the expectations of the course, but it does allow, um, it does reduce the impact of this student's disability on their um, P.E activities modifications on the other hand fundamentally alter or lower the core standards so an example that i put in here and i have i've had this come up on um, ips if the temperature is over 85 degrees the student must remain indoors and engage in non strenuous activities that is going to change what that child's doing compared to what everybody else is doing so i would argue that that would be a modification And obviously if they're doing what they're doing inside is very consistent with what the students are doing outside, then it turns into an accommodation. So it just really depends on how that is. And the parents must be informed of those, what modifications and how kind of the um, consequences of using modifications rather than accommodations, which is typically that they're not meeting grade level standards. State testing is part of the IEP and must be filled out. And there are um, I know that there are physical um, physical tests that are done now as part of the state testing. And so um, and I say now, but there's physical components of the state testing. So whatever accommodations need to be made for that need to be documented. Meeting notes are always tricky. Lots of questions about those. I'm just gonna fly through this. I'm not even gonna like read everything specifically, sorry. Um, just know that it, it should be enough to um, show that we went through, that we established compliance. So we went through all the different components of the IEP um, that, that parents were encouraged to and did participate in the meeting. It does not have to be verbatim. Um, meeting notes are not actually a legal requirement of the IEP, but they're definitely a great practice. They're something that most school districts use. Every school district that I've ever worked with has IEPT team meeting notes. They are... Um, they're just to memorialize the compliance of the IEP and um, again, ensure that we're we're showing that parent participated um, throughout the process. Um, so let's see' um, the notes document the pre-IEP activities. Okay, so notes are a good thing to in the beginning of the notes to document. You know um, where there was any difficulty getting the parent to come to the meeting, if they chose not to come, or you know the efforts that were made to get them there. That would be a good place to put it. That's a good place to document that. Or if there was an excusal of the speech pathologist or the adaptive physical education teacher, that's a good place to put it right at the beginning of the notes that parent agreed to excuse that person, um, and and things like that. So um, yeah, and and the but not you would think that. Nobody would ever write something like that in an IEP, right? But unfortunately, sometimes things like that get written in there. As usual, mom refused to speak. No, we asked mom if she had any questions. She said, no, that's it. If you ask the parent if they have questions and they do have questions, you don't have to write out the whole question. You just acknowledge that you asked them and then you you, um, and, and that the district responded to the questions. Okay. It's. If the parent leaves the meeting, but says, go ahead and continue the meeting, you'd want to document that in there. Similarly, if a team member is there for a part period of time, but has to leave, um, you get parent permission for them to leave, you would document that in the meeting notes. Um, So um, it's a good idea to have a note taker. And you've assigned that person before the meeting. Um, it should be somebody other than who is actually you know, running the meeting or presenting their report. And sometimes it's a multiple people, right? So it starts with the case carrier is presenting the meeting. So they're not taking the notes. Maybe this is a triennial. And so one of these, the assessors is going to take notes while the case carrier is, is doing their part. And then when they're re, um, reviewing their report, then the case carrier takes over and takes the notes personally i really like it if the principal or the administrator takes the notes it ensures that they're paying attention and participating in the meeting but you know that's just a that's just a preference for me but it's uh, it's a it's a great thing to have that administrator do to make sure they're fully engaged in the meeting but you know we can't always make them do that and it should never be the district's attorney or the parents attorney taking the notes it's important to have an agenda. You should you should have an agenda, follow the agenda. Um, you can certainly put that in as the kind of the template for the notes so that you make sure that you cover all of the areas. But if you do put that in as the area of the notes, if you put the agenda in the notes themselves as your kind of talking points, then if you didn't get through everything, make sure you take out what you didn't get to. Yeah, so it, it can be used to outline your notes for sure. Um, so definitely, I think a, a good thing to document in the notes is the placement or services options that were considered and the discussion, you know, kind of the the uh, acknowledgement that there was discussion back and forth. If parent makes specific requests, those should be documented in the notes to make sure we don't miss them. Sorry, I'm on uh, slide 80. If the parent has no input, describe the attempts to elicit that. And um, discussion of related services should reflect the child's needs, not the therapist schedule. So we should never see in the notes. Well, I'm only on this campus one time a week, things not to do some things to avoid, don't fail to put the offer in writing because parents have stated that they don't agree. This is a huge, no, no, a verbal offer is not sufficient. We have to make a clear offer of placement and services and um, you know, Even if we know the parent's not going to agree, we need to get an offer out there. An incomplete offer can can be corrected by a clarification letter and an an IEP amendment in the event that it was just not clarified, but it needs to be written in in the IEP and be a clear offer. It can't be, well, the parent could choose this or that. It's This is the district's offer of FAPE. Okay, and that comes out of a decision also from the Ninth Circuit, from the union. um, It's called the union decision about a clear offer of FAPE. And it was very costly to a school district because what they did was offer one of two different uh, non-public schools rather than making it clear. But things like not being clear about individual and small group, that's an unclear offer, not um, uh, clear about push in or pull out or those types of things. Those are um, it's very important that that there's an offer made. It's written in the IEP, and it's clear to the parent. This is just more about that union decision and the requirement to have um, a written offer. Um, We should avoid things like as needed. So this is, I see in supplementary aids quite often, um, where um, we're giving the student an accommodation as needed. It shouldn't be written as needed. It should be written as when we believe the child Requires that support. So under that frequency and duration, it needs to be specific. And then omitting important details is important too. Just as just as important as not saying that it's push in and pull out is clarifying which one it is. Is this in the general education environment or is it in a separate setting? So those things are important. Specify providers by um, don't specify providers by name. Okay. So it's just um, you know, APE services, and we're not going to actually put a person's name in there. Um, Avoid no-no language, I call it. So district, uh, well, this district never does that. It's against our district policy to dot, 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 to offer, and it's going to come up in those questions in a few minutes. It's against our district policy to offer APE services for preschool students. We're not going to put that in the notes, and we're going to talk about why that may not be the best policy to have anyway. The team is not authorized to make a decision about these services at this time. The services, the decision, should be at the uh, made at the IEP team meeting. If you can't make the decision at the IEP meeting for one reason or another, you say, we're not prepared to make a decision about that. We're going to have to reconvene in order to address that question at another time. As usual, parents' uh, attorney yelled and cursed, not good notes. These all come out of actual IEPs, by the way. The student will always have dot, dot, dot. The school psychologist is on campus only on Tuesdays, so services are limited to that day. Can't say things like that. So those are our no-no language. Unclear notes. Um, having things like excessive typos and misspellings. Have somebody proofread your notes before they go out. It really is important um, to have it clear. Um, And then 87, it does not have to be a script of what was discussed. This is a summary of the discussion and parents and school districts have the right to record IEP meetings if they want a verbatim transcript. Also, if a parent, I think this is on the next slide. um, Okay. So the next slide, 88, sometimes, I don't know, this is a newer practice that, came up over the last couple of years where school districts read the notes at the end of the meeting to make sure the parent is in agreement with the notes. I'm not a fan of that process. I think in some cases, parents really like it. Um, Notes are are not required. They're something that we take to memorialize their district notes. Um, If the parent disagrees with the notes, they always have a right to write um, a, a dissent to some of the things in the notes, or they can write their own notes and we will attach it. You should attach it to the IEP, but reading the notes so that they're in agreement with everything that's said to me just really delays the process and lends to them saying, well, I didn't say it that way. I said this, I didn't say that. Oh, I don't, you know, and you end up with a verbatim set of notes instead of just a summary. So not a great practice in my opinion, it's not prohibited, you can certainly do it. But um, it it does lend to parents having a lot more control over the notes. If the parents come back and say, I think the notes are inaccurate um, and they list out things like, you know, um, it didn't fully include a discussion that we had. Right. That is not a reason to change the notes because the notes are just a summary. If it's that we called the child by the wrong pronoun or by the wrong name or there is a difference between the narrative of the offer of FAPE and what's in the services page, we definitely want to correct those things. But otherwise, the response to the parent would be, thank you very much. If you'd like to write a statement, we're happy to attach it to the IEP. Um, page numbers are really nice to have on IPs. Signatures of all team members are important. It's important to understand that a team member other than the parent is just a participant. That's all you're signing for, that I participated in this meeting. You, Your consent is not necessary. The only person who has consent requirements is the parent. Um, the parent's not getting a full and final paginated IP when they walk out the door don't push for consent at that time then let give them the opportunity once they've had a chance to review the IEP to sign it and and and, and give their consent. So um, prior to starting today um, we received some questions from Garth Tymosen, Um, and he was referencing um, some questions related to the office of special education programs. So Office of Special Education Programs is a department of the U.S. Department of Education. Sorry, I should have capitalized Ed there. Um, They are advisory opinions that are in response to questions posed to the Office of Special Education Programs. Mm -hmm. They are not law. They're not the code. They're not the IDEA. They are not the California Education Code or whatever state you're in, the Education Code. They're advisories based upon the interpretation of those codes. So the IDEA or your state education code. So are they precedential? No, but they are typically followed because if your IEP is challenged, most likely, let's say a complaint is filed with the Office of Civil Rights The Office of Civil Rights is a department of the US Department of Education. And they're most likely going to follow the guidance that was put out by OSEP. So this guidance is not absolute precedential, but it is is strong guidance, I guess I should say. Okay, and so the questions, um, there were three different letters from OSEP that were included in the question. The first one is a letter that was written to OSEP or that OSEP responded to on July 31st, 2013. So it's a while ago, but nothing's changed since then. And basically this is that question, is it appropriate for school districts to deny preschool students adapted physical education services? In that that letter, there's a reference to that same code section I referred to as Title 34, 300.108 that section I referred to earlier, it says that school districts do not have to provide PE to special ed students if it does not provide PE to general education students of the same age, right? And so PE is not mandatory for preschool students um, in the general education setting. So therefore we don't have to have a preschool uh, special education PE program. However, this does not relieve school districts from providing Providing APE services to a preschool student if the student has unique needs that require gross motor support. So um, it's the determination of whether or not a preschool student would be eligible for APE, which should not be based upon whether or not the district gives PE to preschool Mm -hmm. kids. It should be based upon whether or not this child has gross motor deficits that require. The intervention of an APE specialist in order to address those needs. So, and I can tell you that case I had, the parent wanted to go all the way back to preschool um, and whether or not the student should have had APE services. And fortunately, we didn't have to go back that far. We were in second grade. So um, she was in second or third grade. And so during the period of time in question for our hearing, really was when PE is required. But through the research I did in preparation for the hearing, it, it is clear that um, it is not, it, we can't automatically deny APE services just because a student doesn't, just because students don't typically have PE in that age group. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, October 13th, there's another letter. It's a similar question related to high school students who have met their PE requirements for graduation, but may still have gross motor deficits. And just like the pre the preschool students, sec, title 34, section 300.108 does not relieve school districts from their obligation to provide APE services or some other gross motor development supports for students who have unique needs that require it. So just because the student has met their PE requirements um, for graduation doesn't automatically relieve the district from having to do APE services. And there's an OCR opinion as well out of um, Palm Springs, California, where um, that also applied to even adult transition students. Okay. And then the third one was a May 12, 2021. And basically it came down to who's qualified to provide APE services or specially designed PE services. Can those services be provided by a physical therapist? How about a special education teacher? And in this case, OSEP kind of punted and, and did not actually um, mandate one way or the other. They basically said the determination of who provides the support for gross motor skills is based on state policies and procedures. And basically when an IP team determines that a student needs APE or specially designed PE services, that's cert- cert- oh, that's something separate, sorry. Uh, I'll get to that one in just a second. So. Um, What I can tell you is that at least in California, under the California Department of Education, there is a whole handbook that they've put out that I also got very familiar with during that due process case about the differences between occupational therapy, physical therapy, and adapted physical education. And there are a few things that APE specifically addresses. That are not necessarily covered by a physical therapist. Otherwise, there's a lot of crossover, but there were a couple of um, things, and it was mainly learning team sports type of um, activities. I can't remember right offhand exactly what they were, but there is a difference between PT and APE. And then, one other thing that was in that May 12, 2021 um, OSEP letter was that um, APE can be a standalone service. It just reiterated that it's considered special ed. It is not. It is a if a student already qualifies and then they qualify for APE, it's considered a related service. But if they don't otherwise qualify, APE can be a standalone
2: service. Yeah, but it's not a related service, though, Cynthia, correct?
1: It's not. Well, I mean, it would be if a student is, say, um, you know, they have autism and they're also getting adapted physical education. In that sense, it's a related service. It's
2: related to their autism. Okay, but it's not it's not related service as defined by IDEA. Correct. Okay. thank you. Yes. So it's a
1: standalone service. It could be eligibility all by itself. Because physical education is an academic requirement, then APE is a replacement, in oftentimes, of their physical education. So it can be a standalone service. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, would parents be wise to use these letters at IEP meetings or other meetings if they are being denied APE services for children between the ages of 3 and 21? You know, I... I could they use them yes um to me when a parent comes in with something like that it just automatically puts everybody on the defensive um i would hope that our ape people uh, on this call you know recognize that we're not limited in our ape services for students who would otherwise get physical education and that, that doesn't become the debate (laughs) so um that's the way i'm going to answer that question how could parents use the letter like this um if like these if their child is being denied services i'm again same same issue i'm hopeful that they're working with the team and we're we're addressing the students needs based upon the students needs and we don't need to get to a point where the parent has to say but this letter says this letter says you know so mm, i try to minimize those types of conversations. What are the best ways that um, PEID and AP teachers can use OSET policies, clarification letters, and to advocate for appropriate APE services? I would say those are discussions that you would have outside of IEP meetings, okay? So if you're in a school district where they're taking the position that APE teachers do not serve kids, who are in preschool or have met their high school requirements, then it may be that you have a conversation with your director of special ed, your lead APE person, or um, if it's at your site level, your site principal, that's when you bring in these letters and say, look, you know, it really is policy and, and expected that students who need gross motor intervention are provided the supports and services that they need, regardless of whether they would have PE on their program. But I would say the best way to handle this would not be during an IEP meeting. Okay, handle it outside of an IEP meeting.
2: And that is it. Hey, Cynthia, Cynthia, this is Garth Tymosen. Can you hear me? I can. I can. Yes. Just, just a little context with those letters. For several years, I was the legislative co-chair for this organization. Okay. And what we did was, as a result of getting a trend um, in, uh, in lack of services from school districts, we would get information from parents and teachers throughout the country. And once a trend was developed, we would do one of those letters. We would We would request a clarification letter. Okay. And where it was happening was preschool, secondary transition, and persons um, substituting physical therapy instead of adapted physical education. So that's the context as to the topics of those letters. Right. Thank you very. Thank you very much for addressing those. You're
1: welcome. Absolutely. And I do think that they have a very strong um, influence and impact, and should be taken seriously. There shouldn't. it's a shame that we need those types of letters to understand that. But um, yeah, that whole piece about using PT to cover for APE is an interesting issue. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, absolutely. First, on behalf of Nick Deed, we really want to thank you, Cynthia, for a great presentation. Thank you. Yes, thank you. We're the type of group, our hair is on fire, and we have lots of questions. (laughs) Okay, no worries, I'm here. Okay. And again, if you're one of the people who kind of posed this question, you wanna clarify it a little bit further, um, feel free to jump in. But one of the questions in the chat is, from a legal perspective, can APE be a service um, under 504? Um, And then like differences Mm -hmm. between 504 and IEP plans, who asked that question initially? At the beginning, oh, and this goes up.
2: back to Garf's position. Yeah, I think okay. I brought that one up. Um, we're we're having a couple of things again across the country, Cynthia, where teachers are saying their special ed administrators are saying, "Well, let's take this off an IEP and let's make it a 504 plan." Mm-hmm. And, and that's you know, what are the differences? And again, put your hat on if you were a parent advocate. What would you be recommending parents do or teachers do?
1: Okay, so I like to do that. I, that's exactly what I do whenever I have a file. I put, I, I think about what the other side, especially if I'm gearing up for a due process hearing. I always try to put myself in the perspective of the parent, um, and the parents' counsel and how they're going to challenge what I'm thinking. So, based on what kind of what we were talking about right at the end of my presentation, APE is a standalone service. So you've got section 504 is a is a statute that was in effect before the IDEA. Um, and basically it's if a student has a mental or physical impairment that substantially limits a major life activity, they're likely entitled to a 504 plan. And that plan has two components to it. So you've got the FAPE side and the FAPE side for 504 is equal access into the educational setting and making sure that the program meets the child's needs and then the discriminatory side. And that is that we don't wanna deprive kids with disabilities from the same activities as other people based on their disabilities, right? And then we have the IDEA, which is you've got 13 eligibility criteria and um, that is when a student actually needs special education. The IDEA, I like to say the 504 is an umbrella over the IDEA. So every kid who's on an IEP under the IDEA is protected under Section 504. But not every child who has a 504 plan is on an IEP, right? There's a much broader, 504 is a much broader statute. The difference is if they need special education, they should be on the IEP. Okay, and so like we were talking about a few minutes ago, APE is considered special education. It's not a related service. So I get questions all the time about whether we can do mental health or occupational therapy on a 504 plan and absolutely you can, okay, you can. Um, There might be funding issues and you have to have like some funding internally, but I'm talking about from a legal perspective, yes, you can because those are purely related services but APE is special education. So if a child needs special education, they should be on an IP. Thank you. Okay. Yep.
0: All right. Great. Um, the next question is about gender identity and oh, yeah. I, yeah, in California, um, again, we have the uh, ability to, um, you know, male, female, or non-binary right. and the kind of question, uh, along that, I think this was proposed by Tanya. I think maybe she had to bounce off of it. I, I know one of it was with regards to assessment. And how do we handle assessments that are broken into categories like male and female?
1: Oh, I wish I had a great answer for you. I really do. There's This is a lose-lose situation right the reason why there are different categories of boys and girls in the physical education because we don't see that in academic testing right or cognitive testing. we don't see it in that but in the physical sense is because there's a difference between boys and girls and their physical abilities and when they develop things might be slightly different too so based upon their genetics they should be tested for the gender they were born right because that is the criteria they should be measured against, but then at the same time, you might be offending their right to choose their gender. I would test them based upon their biological gender and refer to them in the report based upon their preferred identification. That's what I would recommend. I don't know that there's a
0: perfect answer to this. And Tanya's question also was about um, identifying, how did she state it, something about qualifying students who are gender non-binary for services under emotional disturbance.
1: When we're looking at ED, there's, there's five specific criterias that a child must meet to a marked degree over a long period of time that are significantly impacting their education. And you look specifically at those five things and determine whether one of them applies. And I, it sounds like her question is, would the fact that the child is identifying as something other than their biological gender meet one of those criteria? Only if it otherwise does. Right. So are they having an inability to form and maintain relationships with peers and adults? Are they, you know, creating and I'm not looking at the specifics right now, but creating symptoms of, you know, are they experiencing depression? Those are, so they look at the five criteria and say, does this child meet it, whether that's based on their gender uncertainty or. Or, or what you know it's, they just really need to follow the um, criteria for ED.
0: Thanks. The next question is about paraprofessionals. Can paraprofessionals provide mm-hmm. services to students who qualify for APE without supervision from a certified teacher? Okay, can a paraprofessional evaluate be the teacher of record?
1: Can they evaluate? No. (laughs) So the evaluation has to be done by somebody who's qualified to do the evaluation, which would be somebody who's credentialed um, and has the added certification for an APE teacher. Um, Supervision is an interesting terminology. It's defined in California, at least in our education code. um, And it doesn't require that the person be in immediate um, vicinity of. So supervision is is allowed to be, again, oversight of this person. Interestingly, under Title V regulations, which are state regulations in California, there's allowance for what's called a CODA, which is a a Certified Occupational Therapy Assistant or a SLIPA, Speech and Language Pathologist Assistant. And we're allowed to use those, um, but it has to be, I think it's with the SLIPA, it has to be clearly identified in the IP that the direct service (coughs) will be provided by the SLIPA. But I don't know that there's anything out there for uh, APE teachers. But at the same time, we use instructional assistance in classrooms all the time to help support a student. So I can't imagine that you wouldn't be allowed to do that in the world of APE. But there should be, you know, definitely we've got to have some clear oversight and supervision of that person. So if what you have is um, an instructional aide who's in the general education excuse me, PE class. And they're helping to support that student's access to that general education program. It's part of their APE services. And then you should probably have some consult up there between the APE and the general education teacher. And then, you know, then and, 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 and the aid probably you would put both of those in there. Yeah, I think it can be done. I think it should be Parents should be on notice that you're using um, instructional support in order to, you know, an aid in order to provide that intervention in the classroom setting. But it's not it's not specifically required. It's only specifically required that you have it written in the IP that a slippa will be working with the student instead of an SLP. Um, but I would think if you're doing direct services pull out pull out direct services an ape teacher that has aids there that are helping them perfectly fine right as part of a small group or larger group type of setting and then the only other time you would use an aid to to provide the direct service i would think would be that
0: push-in service uh next is how can you create legally defensible reports for parents who are still requesting virtual assessments in the home school setting
1: well through covid we were really in a Terrible situation, right? And so we were, there were districts that refused to do virtual assessments at all. Um, I don't think that that was the right approach to take. My recommendation was uh, to school district was that you have in the validity statement, acknowledgement that this was done virtually, and that may have an impact on the scores, but then go ahead and do the assessment reports with parents on notice. When we were in the middle of COVID, like that 2021 school year, districts that I worked with, we've sent out a private notice that said, you know, we have three options for you. We believe testing is necessary. We have three options for you. We can do it virtually. Here's your pros and cons for that. We can do it in person. Here's your pros and cons for that. Or we can wait until... We've come back to in person and then we can do the assessment at that time and had the parent sign. So it was their decision which way they went. And then if they chose virtually, then and even in person at that time, because everybody was masked and it changed, you know, cognitive testing and all of that stuff when kids are masked, um, we had it in the validity statement. So here we are now where we could test in person, but the parent is refusing and they want it to be virtual. I would make note of that at the beginning of the report that you were available to test the student in person. However, for whatever reason, we don't have to necessarily even include the reason, but for reasons, uh, personal reasons, parent chose to have this assessment done virtually. Here's how it may impact the ultimate results of the assessment. And you have to do, you know, in cases like that, I know with physical types of assessments, it's trickier. Sometimes you may need to have two different electronic devices. You may have to have a a one that has a camera on so you can see what's going on. And then another one so that the child can you can give the child the instruction and 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 engage with the student with another one that's that's actually um, recording what the child is doing so that you can use that as part of your analysis. So it's not (laughs) ideal. I'll be honest. It's not ideal.
0: Um, Next with regard to service delivery. Can we mark individual and group? And then kind of a follow-up to that one. Can we mark group if a student would benefit from group? Or should we be in a group? However, there are no students to group them with. So are their services individual?
1: Okay. You should, as, as I said, you should never have small group and individual marked. Well, okay. I always try to, I, I try to avoid nevers and always. I, I, I really do. The general rule should be you don't mark small group and individual on the same service line, okay? If you're going to do both, you know you're going to do both, have two separate services. If you do mark it that way, you need to be clear that this many sessions will be individual and this many sessions will be small group because I don't know your IEP process, your program, and so there may be some reason why you can't have two services. I can tell you under SACE, you can. But any, I don't know the other service providers, the other service programs. Um, so then, in a situation where you've got a student, and please, I want to, I want to make one correction right now because what I heard you say, Melissa, was the student would benefit from group. Okay? Yeah. The criteria is not will they benefit from. The criteria is whether or not that service is necessary for the child to receive a FAPE. Okay? Um, and so, assuming that's what you meant, that there, that it's that. Based on their goals, they need group APE services. But unfortunately, they're the only kid on this campus that has APE or something. We don't have any other kids. My recommendation would be you, you list it as group because that's what you're recommending in order for them to achieve the goals. And you make parent aware of the fact that right now there are no additional students. And so you will be working with the student one-on-one, but as soon as other students become available, they will join the group. But it's group that's necessary in order to meet the goals.
0: Okay, great. I like this question a lot. Clarification if consult minutes require a goal. Ah,
1: not usually. No, no, I do not normally see gold for consult. Um, It just kind of depends. If you're, you've assessed a student and they don't qualify for direct services, but they do have deficits that warrant having um, some, some intervention between you and the general education PE provider. It really, I don't think that Technically, you are required to write a goal for that, but there may be circumstances where you need to. I I just don't know how significant and whether or not there are things that we think this child needs to achieve in order to say, okay, now that they've achieved this thing, we can reevaluate and determine that they no longer need APE services, you know? So again, I try to avoid always and nevers. I think the general rule is when it's in supplementary aids as a consult service, we don't have to write goals, but there may be circumstances where you do. So I'm sorry. It's one of those, it depends answers that I know everybody right. thinks that as lawyers like to
0: give, but it really does. With this one, I think what the question, uh, so it's, what are the components of an assessment plan? Does it include a way to notify the AP specialist that a referral has been completed and consent has been obtained? Frequently the APE specialist hears about the request to evaluate this is prior to the December 3rd meeting. So I think that's just us not being in the loop or being told.
1: Yeah, I. so what was the original question though? I understand the problem, APes are not being told until your timeline's almost up,
0: right? <laughs> But what was the original question? I think the original question was just, what are the components of a set, an assessment plan? Okay. And does it include a way to make sure that the AP teachers are involved?
1: <laughs> <No. okay>. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> to the second part, and I don't mean to laugh, I don't, but I, I wish it did because it's not unusual. OTs, too. I hear this a lot from OTs. I didn't even know I was supposed to assess until two weeks ago or a week ago or something. Um, what are the components of an assessment plan? They're laid out under the IDEA and in California, in the California Education Code. And basically, you have to put the parent on notice of why you're assessing and what areas you plan to assess we don't typically put the tools that we're going to use, but the types of tools instead. And the reason why it doesn't have to specifically identify the tools is because, um, you know, we want to have some ability to, we have to be flexible and, you know, be able to in, increase our our, our our tool bank if we need to, right? So we have to state the purpose of the assessment. We have to um, identify the area to be assessed, the expert that will be doing the type of assessment that we're talking about, and then there's an important component that says that um, part of an assessment plan needs to notify the parent special education services will not be provided provide consent to them, and then an opportunity for them to sign. Now some assessment plans have more than that, but those are the key legal required components and when we're proposing an assessment then it should go out with a prior written notice so if we're proposing or refusing an assessment then it should go out with a prior written notice and prior written notices have their own requirements like you know what are you proposing or what are you refusing and those types of things having assurances that you're put on notice when you have assessments you need to do is really something you have to work on internally You've got to make sure that your site administrator or administrators, if you're itinerant, understands why you need the 60 days, just like the school psychologist does, (laughs) you know, and talk to your colleagues. Right. Maybe if you're having a problem with that, then maybe ask to be invited to, because typically I would think this is either your case carriers or your school psychologists that are not getting that message out. Has to be invited to one of their monthly meetings or something, and then you know, speak out about what's happening and why it's
0: so impactful for you. All right, thank you. Mm-hmm. Next, under present levels, the standardized scores are not to be included because they are in the report. What if the report is not in the parent's native language? Should we include the standardized scores in the IEP under PLP then?
1: I don't think you should ever put standardized scores in the present levels. I don't. I just don't think I don't think standardized scores are, are, are understandable enough to parents. Parents have the right to ask that you translate the assessment report. And if they're monolingual, something other than English, then typically you're going to have an interpreter during the IEPT meeting. The interpreter is going to interpret the results as you're going through them so that during the meeting the parent has an understanding. And then typically the assessment report doesn't get actually translated until after the fact, because it's within your 60 day timeline, it's really hard to get those translated and ready for the parent during the meeting. So that's the way you handle it, but I don't think that's a reason to put standard scores in the present levels, no.
0: Hey, thank you. What if a student has APE services listed in their IEP, but the district no longer has an APE teacher?
1: Oh, then they're in trouble. Yeah. They, they need yeah, to come the, back with somebody else.
0: <laughs> what if the district's posted for an APE teacher for a year, but they're not getting anyone to apply legally, what could happen to that district?
1: They're liable for not only making up the sessions that are missing, but whatever deprivation happens to that child. So typically we think about comp ed as he missed seven sessions. So we make up seven sessions, but it really, it really doesn't work that way. A student may miss seven sessions and really didn't fail to make progress on their goals. And so under under a due process case, they wouldn't even be found to have denied FAPE. But so that's usually the way we look at it, though, is we miss seven. So we make up seven. But it's really a different calculation than that. So one, if this were before a hearing officer or an administrative law judge, they're going to look at was a child deprived? And what do they need to make up from that deprivation? But there's liability there. So they need to find a way to contract with an outside agency or something. Okay, thank you.
0: Oh, Mm -hmm. go ahead, follow up. Um, Would the person who wrote the APE goals that no longer works for the district be held liable in any way if they resigned? No. You're only held personally liable. So you have
1: immunity based upon your your position as a public employee. And the only way to pierce that immunity is if you do something that's grossly negligent or intentional. And those are not handled under due process cases. Those are civil rights cases. And so if you do something like, and don't get me wrong, it doesn't mean, so in a civil rights case, a parent may name somebody directly, um, but that still doesn't mean you necessarily have liability, even if you get named. You get named sometimes just because that's what the parents do, but liability attaches, in um, you have um, to worry about that if you did something intentional or grossly negligent. That's when you become liable. But the fact that you wrote the goals and then you resigned from the district, no, you would not be or not you in particular, Danielle, because I know you're not going anywhere. You're gonna stay with your district, but if somebody were to write goals and then leave the district, that does not make them liable.
0: Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, Any advice how to write a unified PE model into the IEP? Since unified PE is not specifically listed in our ed code, can we specify it as specially designed PE and then indicate the setting as general ed since unified PE classes are at least 50% gen ed students. I'm not
1: familiar with the term unified PE classes, but it sounds like what they, the person answered their own question. There's 50% general education students in there, but there's some way of um, accommodating that program. So I'm guessing it's just kind of slightly different than your typical PE class, but not to the level of being APE. that's safe to assume
2: okay but there's but there's specially designed instruction because you've got yes. one-on-one instruction and that's the reason why they're doing that model because the youngsters would not be successful without it so why
1: don't they qualify for APE then
2: that's a very good question i think they should oh okay
0: they yeah. still might that would just be where they're getting their PE minutes typically Correct. those kids do still have some type of adapted need support
1: so I would call it specially designed PE, and I would I would say if there's fifty percent of the kids are in gen ed, you don't even have to count it as outside of the gen ed setting.
2: Unfortunately, we do have some districts around the country that are saying, "Oh, if you're doing unified physical education, you do not need goals, and that's not considered specially designed PE." Well, I I would probably agree with them, Garth.
1: If they don't otherwise have APE, if they otherwise have APE, that's what the goals are for. Universal PE, where you've got kind of a blend of of kids who are in special ed and kids who are not, but there's all, they have physical limitations, right? Mm -hmm. And so we have a special PE class for them. That's not necessarily something you need goals for. That's, that would be my, but again, I'm not very familiar with the term either. So from what, the way it's being described here, I would say that's just a, that's no different than a reading intervention class. For students that have both special needs and general ed students, um, but they don't need SAI specifically for that reading intervention. We're just trying to bump them up. They don't need goals for that. They're in Read 180 or something like that. They don't need goals for that
0: unless it is their special ed service. Okay, great. Continuing on, do you think from a legal standpoint that if IDEA does not acknowledge physical education, Um, With the reauthorization, how might this affect APE specialists in our program? The IDEA does recognize. Is this the question question with the reauthorization if it drops physical education from the language?
1: Why would it? I don't think it's going to. Well, is there They're a reason good. to believe Great. that it's going to? Yeah. Well, is there, does there is you know, some it. word out there? Yeah. I don't, I don't think
0: that's an issue. I don't no, no, Yeah. No talking. No yeah. <laughs> I just, yeah. I
1: don't think that's, that's a possibility.
2: Mm-mm. Because
1: Fantastic. PE <laughs> is a mandatory, you know, it's a required course in all schools. So I don't see that ever happening.
0: Yeah. When,
2: when the time comes for reauthorization, we need to be ready to make sure that doesn't happen. Okay. That's a good right. plan.
0: Yeah,
1: that's where you guys get together and mm-hmm. and have your lobbyists make sure that they're covering that
0: and making sure. Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you, Cynthia. You are amazing as always. Much appreciated.